If you have a Bible, go ahead to Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. That's where we're going to be. Um, again, I want to welcome you. If you're new with us, welcome. Glad you guys are here. And I'm going to test this once more. Are you awake today? Are you? So this, this side is pretty good. A couple of you gave me like the, the golf clap. Like, so at the end, this is what I told the first service, I'm going to preach really hard at you all. And if you feel guilty, it's your fault. It's not mine. So we're going to jump in. Uh, Ephesians 3 is where we're going to be. Uh, I want you to know that starting in March, we're going to have a new series that we call The Comeback. And The Comeback is going to tell one of the greatest stories, I believe, in all of history, definitely probably the greatest story in Scripture other than Jesus, of someone who watched their life fall apart and then found their way back into God's story. And so I would love for you to make sure you're a part of that. If you have friends that need a good comeback, which I believe that our community is filled with those folks, this series is going to take us all the way to Easter when we talk about Jesus' comeback from the grave. So I want you to know that's coming. Um, as we start today, if you're new, you may not know me that well, but I, I have a thing for food. If you've been around a while, you know that like my, my sermons are often, sorry, this microphone is giving me problems, and I can't blame anyone but myself. Um, I have a thing for food. I have a thing for really good food. I don't like bad food. If you'd like to meet sometime and have lunch with good food, we'll do that, and I'll let you pay. Um, we, we can hang out. I love food that is local to certain places. I love getting good food from local places. So many of you maybe know that the only place to really get good fish tacos is Southern California. I, fish tacos are going to be in heaven. I'm just telling you, that's what's going to happen. Um, some of you are grossed out. Chicago has pretty unbelievable pizza. Anybody had the deep dish from Chicago? Come on, hands up. Wow. All right. You guys got to travel. There's so much good food in the world. And then New York just has everything. You can get anything that's, that you want in New York. That's good. And so several years ago, Carrie and I had the opportunity to go up to Maine and we were in this tiny little town and we said, if we're, you guys know Maine, if we're going to be in Maine, we've got to get a lobster. Like we've got to get a real Maine lobster. Now to this point, let me just fill you in on my ignorance at this point. We were young. We didn't really know what we were doing. And at this point, I thought lobster meant like outback. Okay, so it was like the tail. Everybody with me? And, and when you bring the tail out, you you like it's ready for you. Really, all you have to do is shake it hard enough, and it, the meat will fall out, and you soak it in that butter. It's so good, and it's just perfect, right? So I walked into this restaurant with Carrie, and this was a nice restaurant, probably a nicer restaurant than we'd been to yet in our marriage. We were young, and I sit down, and I'm like, I want your whole lobster. I want the like, I want it to be alive right now. And when you write it down, I want you to go kill it for me. And I want that thing out here now. And, he, and the waiter was so kind. He was like, absolutely. So he brings us two whole lobsters. And as he approached, we realized that we had absolutely no idea what to do with this lobster that was kicking a few minutes ago and had pleasantly fallen to sleep in some nice water and not woken up. Like we had no, I think there's animal lovers in the room. It's just a lobster. God gave it to it. They're so good. And I'm losing my voice. So you're going to hear a lot of passion today. I'm not yelling at you. It's just my voice is going. So the waiter looks at us, and I think this must have happened to him pretty regularly. Like, people were like, oh, I have a whole lobster. And then they had no idea how to eat it. So he looks at us so kindly, and he was like, do you need some help? And that's where it got interesting, because we said yes. And, and I thought, like, in my ignorance, he's going to show us. He's going to take the lobster, and he's going to just... And I didn't have a problem with that. He was dressed really nicely. He had the napkin over his arm. I knew his hands were clean. I had no problem. There were places that I would go, and I'm, no, you're not going to help me. Don't touch my food. But he was fine. And so I thought that was what was going to happen. It wasn't. He started to verbally communicate to us how to break apart. And he's naming the parts of the lobster. I had no idea what the parts of the lobster were. He's trying to show us. And, and at one point, he like 
takes an extra set of the crackers, the shell crackers, and he points at the part. He's like, take that and break it. And I'm like, just help me. Like, just show me. You're not telling me anything. But he was using his napkin over his arm, his prim and proper way. He was very contained in how he was showing us how to eat this, this lobster. Now, in my mind, the meat was in the shell. You're going to break the shell. I don't, you're not messing it up. Like, let's do this, right? This is what I kind of wanted it to look like. Matt, go ahead and bring up that, that picture. Um, this is what I wanted to happen. And then it got to a point where he had explained and he was telling us, like, we finally got into it and there's this stuff. And he's like, that's a delicatessen. Some people really enjoy that. And I'm like, that's gross. I know what that means. Like, I'm not eating something that's a delicatessen. And, and I just, at that point, I was like, get out of here. Leave us alone. We'll rip into it. We'll figure it out. Like, that's, that's the point that I got to, but he wouldn't leave. And we had to just be patient and kind. And I was so hungry. Um, now, pause on that, because my brain, when I was writing this sermon, this is where my brain went next. I don't know how many of you have ever seen the movie Beasts of the Southern Wild. It's, it's, a, it's a great film. It's a really obscure film. But it's about a fishing community off the coast of Louisiana that is actually separated from the mainland completely by levees. And so this, this group of people lives in their own community. They've got their own culture, their own styles. And there's a little girl in the movie who goes by the name of Hush Puppy, which is awesome in itself. And her dad goes by Wink. I, I know. I like films. This is a good one. It's not a movie. It's a film. You should watch it. Um, But here's what happens. My favorite scene of the movie is where Hush Puppy is being taught how to eat a hard shell crab. And this is when when I wrote this sermon, I was like, that's what I wanted the waiter to do. So I want you to watch this clip because I wanted to eat the lobster like a beast. This will tell you what I mean. Come here, Hush Puppy. Come see my yard for John here. Let me show you. Yeah. Yeah, baby. Don't be scared of it now. Turn it upside down. There you go. Now, push it with your thumb. Good girl. That's it. And then real careful. Take your knife and you pop this off. That's beautiful. No, my puppy! Beast it! Beast it! Show me you can do it! I love that, right? I love the beast it mentality. Let me just ask a question. How many of you in the room have ever finished a meal with people chanting at you as you've done it? Put the hand up. Yeah, okay. (laughs) We love that. And, and, And here's the reality. Have you ever sat with somebody who's eating something that they're not just sitting to eat, they're enjoying it? Are you with me? Anybody? You're, you're passionate about it. They're engaged. They're fully like Some of you are looking at your spouse because that's the only way they eat. Every time they eat, there's passion and there's life. That's what it means to beast it. Now, here's, here's why I'm talking about this. Some of us, I believe, we need to wake up and start beasting our faith. We need to come to life when it comes to our faith. We've been talking, we started last week talking about this idea of God being uncontainable. What does it mean that God's uncontainable? I tried to convince you of a couple things. One, I said this, that humans have always tried to contain God. 
We've always tried to put God in a box, to put God in a place where he's limited or, 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 or God can do things, but he can only do so much. I said that many of you, if maybe you've been a Christian and you struggle with these things, or you would say, I'm not a follower of Christ and this is what I struggle with, because we have assumptions when we contain God. Some of those assumptions look like this. One, we would say, well, God doesn't exist because he didn't show up at that critical moment in my life. And that's containing God. Some of us would say, well, God doesn't, God doesn't love. He may exist, but he's not loving because too many others hurt me along the journey. I've been hurt too much. Or, or, or maybe this assumption that God isn't active because he let me down. That God maybe got the world started, he got everything created and going, but, but he's not active anymore, so I pray, like, well, I believe that he can, he, he can do certain things. So what I tried to convince you of last week was this, God is absolutely uncontainable. He's never been a God who will exist within our limits. Solomon, the great king of Israel, actually prayed this at one point. He's building a temple for God. He said, listen, God, you, will you really dwell here on earth? Because the heavens can't even contain you. So I asked you last week, where do you need to change your expectations of God? See, for many of us today, I want you to hear this. For many of us, I believe that we have been taught to grow in our faith. Maybe you had a pastor or a friend or a parent that raised you as a Christian or, or tried to teach you the Christian faith. And, and I believe that many of us have been raised in our faith and we've been taught like that waiter tried to teach me to eat that lobster. Very prim, very proper, very contained, very much, here's the rules, here's what it looks like. And the problem with that is this, the way that we live out our faith actually represents our perception of God. The way that we carry out our faith into the world, the way that we live what we believe represents what we believe about God. And I want to challenge you today as we talk about this uncontainable God that many of us need a faith that looks a lot more like hush puppy tearing into that crab. We need that. We've started this year talking about love as the movement of God in the world, that love is God's action in, in the world. And I believe that for many of us, the version of Christianity that we grew up with, that we were taught, that we were handed down, it is not necessarily what Christianity looked like under Jesus, but it's actually a contained Christianity. And when I say it's contained, here's what I mean. Our, our faith at times is contained to Sundays. So I'm a Christian, so I go to church on Sunday, and that's, that's where my faith really gets expressed. I can be myself. I can express who I am as a Christian. Or maybe our faith is contained to rules, right, that you grew up in a setting or you exist in a setting now where you think believing in Jesus is all about the rules that you follow. If you grew up in a youth group, maybe you had that experience where you went to summer camp and you broke all those secular CDs. Amen? A couple of you had that experience. And then you went, I wish I had those CDs back today because God is about grace, right? Many of us have Christianity that's contained to behavior or to theology or style. So we think, well, our version of church is the right version of church, amen? And that other version of church is the wrong version of church. And we're first, you fill in the blank, church. So we have it right. But then there's another first so-and-so church right across the street from us. And how can we both be first? And what a, We have a, a, an assumption about where it's contained to. Some of us have a faith a Christianity that's contained to keeping God at a safe distance. So I want God in my life, but I don't want him to take too much ownership of my life. I kind of like the way that I get to live. What I want you to grab onto today is this. If you're taking notes, write this down. This is what I want you to hold onto. When we encounter an uncontainable God, we will start to live uncontainable lives. 
See, I want you to recognize this. When we hold on to the fact, the reality, the truth that we serve, that we honor, that there is a God who exists, who is uncontainable, will never be limited by our boxes, that in reality, God doesn't sit in this church waiting for you Monday through Saturday. He doesn't watch you all leave on Sunday mornings and go, oh, I hope they come back. That was so fun. That's what I do. That's my job. That God is uncontainable, that when you leave these doors, God goes with you. When we encounter that uncontainable God, our lives suddenly become uncontainable. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that. See, I want to look at a scripture about this. This is from Ephesians chapter 3. And Paul wrote this letter to this church at Ephesus. And Paul is such a good writer, but as Paul writes this, it's almost like his words are coming faster than his thoughts can keep up. And I under, that's what I feel every Sunday morning. Here's what he says. Look at verse 12. Paul says, in him, so in Christ and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and Confidence. So let me just tell you, I'm going to give you like three or four things today that I believe these uncontainable lives look like that this scripture spells out for us. Here's the first thing. When you encounter an uncontainable God, your life becomes uncontainable. Here's how it becomes uncontainable. Number one, you have uncontainable access to God. Paul says in him, we may approach God. We may actually get, can you imagine looking God in the face and feeling like you can approach him? This is what Paul says, you can approach him, but you can't just approach him. You can approach him with freedom and confidence. The writer of Hebrews chapter 4, he says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Did you ever have a religious leader that you sat down with and it was just ultra clear in the first five minutes? They had no idea what you were going through and what you were experiencing, but they were pretending to? Some of you are like, yeah, I met with you this week. Like, we, I, I totally get that. You guys are not laughing at any of my jokes today. It's 11 o'clock, man. Come on. See, Jesus is the high priest that understands completely. Verse 15, that writer in Hebrews says, for we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he didn't sin. And then here's the result of this type of high priest. Let us then approach God's throne of grace. Everybody say this, with confidence, with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now listen, here's what I know about many of you. Many of you are really good at ignoring phone calls. Amen? You don't want to admit it. Many of you are really good at ignoring cell phone calls. Many of you maybe ignore my cell phone calls. But here's the deal. Some of you are really good at ignoring text messages. Some of you are really good at ignoring Facebook stuff. And here's what I know. One of the challenges of, uh, of leading an organization today is finding out how people communicate. Some of you won't answer a phone call if I call you 12 times, but you'll answer a text message in 30 seconds. It just means you don't want to socialize on the phone. Anybody with me? Like, just admit it. Let's confess. Okay. Some of you will not answer a text message, but you'll answer a phone call. I don't text. Really? Okay, so we don't do that. Some of you won't answer either thing, but you pay hundreds of dollars every month just so you can ignore them and then do Facebook. It's a challenge. But I also know this. Certain people in your life have access to you at all times. Certain people in my life have access to me. If I'm meeting with you and my wife calls or my kids call or they text, I will put you on hold. I will actually stop what I'm doing because they have access to me. As the father, as the husband, there is full access, and they know they have access, and they live like they have access. And so my kids will come, and they'll interrupt, right? Isn't it great? Because they have access to the heart of a parent. 
Here's my question. Do you live your life like you actually believe God will pick up your call? Do you actually engage your faith in a way that says, God, I know you want to hear from me. I know that, that you want to engage with me. You want to converse with me. See, many of us are living like we don't believe we can truly approach God, and it's because we've contained God, and now our lives are contained. But Paul says here, in him you have freedom and confidence that you can approach God. But the things that stand in the way of that, many of us have fear that keeps us from accessing God, approaching God. Many of us have shame or anger or we have misperceptions about who God is. Remember I told you the way you live your faith shows what you believe about God. Some of you see God as this cosmic principle, right? And he's not your pal. He's sitting at the chalkboard and he's measuring out everything we do. And he's got a list of names on the board. Remember kindergarten and elementary school? And every time we mess up, he puts a check mark by our name. And if you mess up three times, he's going to hurl those cosmic lightning bolts at you. Like that's kind of how we perceive God. And so that God is scary. I don't want to go to the principal's office. But God says, I want you to come with freedom and confidence. See, we have access to God like we've never imagined. Keep going. Verse 14 of Ephesians 3, Paul says this. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. Now, as you read this, I want you to pause, and I want you to go, for what reason? What, what is Paul talking about? And, and much like my sermons, Paul, you have to go back a chapter earlier to understand why, what reason he's talking about. Here, here's what it says in Ephesians 2. For he himself, Christ himself, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Now, pause. Here's what Paul's talking about. At this point... The Jewish followers of Christ still believed that Christianity, the gift of God, the Savior of God was only for themselves and everybody else was outside of God's favor. But Paul is confronting this and saying, listen, this hostility that you have to people who are not like you, the Gentiles, the different ethnic groups, the, the gender issues, God is destroying those in Christ. He's tearing down this dividing wall. And then he goes on, verse 15, he says, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. Then in Christ, he was redefining what it meant to be human. It didn't matter if you were Jew or Gentile. It didn't matter if you were slave or free, male or female. He's making one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death the hostility. So in chapter 3, Paul says, it's for that reason that I kneel before God the Father. Because, here's the second part of your uncontainable life. When you have uncontainable life in an uncontainable God, you have an uncontainable connection to God's people. When God does something in your life through Christ that you say, man, I have access to the God who scooped out the stars, who crafted the universe, who shaped the mountains and created the oceans. I've got access to that God. And because I have access to that God, I now have a connection to every human being that he's ever created. See, no one is outside of God's family if they're in Christ. We, we've been talking about this idea of love being the movement. And, and I just, I just want to say to you, like, as a pastor today, when I meet non-Christians, and, and I get the opportunity to meet non-Christians in our community, I get the opportunity to meet non-Christians when I travel, and when I interact with them, here's what's really hard about the job that I do, okay? The hard part for me is trying to convince them that God is not always like the Christians that they know. That Jesus is not like the Christians they know. And I say that's hard because here's the reality. They have not seen a church that is really good at loving people. 
If the church could embrace, listen, the connections that God wants to build between people, we would be unstoppable today. Do you realize in our culture how easy it is for us, and I'm saying us, I'm saying you and me both, for us to dislike others, for us to judge others, for us to hate others. We have entire political systems, media systems, social systems, financial systems set up on building between people distrust and distaste. That's the way our world is functioning. And I think as the church, if we encounter this uncontainable God, we should find it easy to love people. How many of you would say that? It's easy to love people. People are so easy to love. It's super hard, right? I think in Christ, when we are filled up with the presence of Christ and God becomes uncontainable in our lives, we should start to go, man, I want to hate you, but I can't. Like, there's so much to dislike about you, but God has just put love in me, and I can't help because you're created in his image. And, and as, listen, God has no taste because he chose me. We're so messy, and God wants to build these connections. See, one, one scholar I read this week said, if God's purpose set forth in Christ is to unite all things in him, if that was really what Christ was trying to do, then to grow toward him, to grow towards Christ is to grow toward the one who has broken down the dividing walls between ourselves and God and between ourselves and the other. See, if the church wants to stand out today, I, I, don't, I just refuse to believe we need bigger buildings and better programs and better branding and marketing and really good Twitter presence. And I think we need to learn to love the people that we haven't loved for a long time. And I think we could take this conversation to the very broad level of, uh, of racial reconciliation. How is the church leading the way in the things that God would have us to unite over? And when it comes to immigration and when it comes to government systems and politics, like the church should be leading the way, not with agendas, but simply saying, we know Christ has called us to love. But then it also has to come down to this micro level to say, friends, do you care about your neighbors? Well, it's West Virginia. I don't have any neighbors. Yes, you do, even if they're five miles away. Do you care about you? Do you love your neighbors? Is God building that in you? Paul goes on. Verse 16, and this, this is a little complex. I want to break this down. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now, let me ask this question. I, this is participation. Actually engages, all right? Stay with me. Have you ever met somebody who's super rich, Right? Come on, I, I know it's like relative and a few, some of you are like, no, I wish I could I'd marry him, right? I worked in a church and the youth ministry was entirely sustained. Our budget was entirely sustained by one person. Now you may go, oh, okay, that, that, that's kind of cool that somebody would do that. No, you don't understand. This guy, every year he would meet with us and he would say, I'm going to commit $90,000 just for the youth ministry. We were making programs up because it was so fun. Right? We were like, no student ever has to pay for anything. Go get your friends. It's all free. Come on. His wealth changed the face of our whole ministry experience. We could do things that we had never imagined. Now listen to me. Don't miss this. God is richer than that. God has resources for us. And Paul says, I want you to know and be strengthened with power because of God's riches. I want it to come into your life. And then he goes on. Why? Why do you want us to be strengthened? Paul says, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And then he says, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's people. Now pause here because there's a tension there's something we got to get at because Paul says, I want you to be rooted and established in love, but, but I want you to have power. 
I want you to be powerful. I want you to understand that you're rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, but, but it's a powerful thing. See, we need power in our lives today. Amen? Some of you are not convinced. For addiction to be eradicated in our state, in our region, that's going to take power. It's going to take power of Christ. It's not something that's necessarily going to suddenly go away. We have to have power. For poverty to be defeated, for hunger, for broken homes, for broken marriages to be restored, something outside of us must be more powerful. And Paul says, I want that. I want you to have that power. But for what reason? Look at the next part of verse 18. To grasp how wide. And how long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now hang there because I'm going to come back to that. Here's the third thing that our uncontainable lives start to look like. We have uncontainable power built out of Christ's love. Now listen, I'm not giving you just a positive speech. Hey, you're powerful. Like, Go get them. I'm saying the power of God, Paul goes on in Ephesians to say the same power that rose Christ from the dead is the power that exists in you because of his love. Friends, that's real. That's tangible. See, in our world today, here's what we equate power to. Here, here's what political systems, celebrity systems set up. They say, you will love me if I show you how powerful I am. So I want you to vote for me, but let me convince you how powerful I am. I can change your world. I can change all the problems that you see. We see the same way, and you know I have power, so look what I can do. That's the culture of today. You'll love me if I show you my power, but Christ says this. Christ flips it on its head, and he says, you'll be powerful when you know my love. You're not going to be powerful till you know the depth of God's love. See, there's a difference between power and and love. Power looks to violence, doesn't it? Love looks to heal. Power destroys and love creates. Power holds things enslaved in its grip. Love gives freedom. Power brings darkness at all times. Love brings light. Power creates fear. Love creates hope. Power manipulates and coerces. Love persuades. Power controls, but love collaborates. Power closes things off. Love opens them up. Power hoards resources, and love shares generously. Power spreads lies. And love spreads truth. Power brings sadness and love brings joy. See, I want to ask you this. I want to challenge you with this. Are the relationships, apply this to any relationship in your life. So parents, think about this. Think about your relationship with your child, your son or daughter. Think about your relationship with your spouse. Think about your relationship with the person that you're dating or your family members or, or your neighbors or where you work. Are those relationships built on power or love? You say, well, my kids need to know how powerful I am. They need to know that, that I make the decisions. You're right, they do. But if it's not built from love, you will one day lose their heart. I guarantee it. You'll lose their heart. And when they don't know you love them and it's just power, you've lost it already. See, this is the crazy, upside-down, beasted nature of God's kingdom. Your life will only be uncontainable when your power comes from God's love. I think it's almost like Paul is spilling over. He's like, you know, you got to know like how much God loves you. You got to understand it's, it's wide. It's as far apart as it can get it, but it's also, it's high and it's deep and it's long. And, and I want you to be filled up to the measure. And then he says, verse 19, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. 
I want you to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So pause this. Paul's saying, I want you to live out of the overflow. I want you to to, to live with these riches of God just spilling out of your life. And I would say many of us struggle because we're living from scarcity. I watch you all, and I'm battling against this in my own life. You're exhausted. You don't even have the energy to laugh at my jokes on a Sunday morning. You were just lucky to get in the door. Because you're so tired, you're so spent, you're so emotionally worn out, you're so relationally exhausted, and we're living from scarcity because we don't abide ongoing in the relationship of God's love. This is what we should be praying for. Now, I I want you to see this. He says you're going to have power over sin. See, power to defeat the sin in your life doesn't come from contained sin management, which is what the church has been about for a long time. I'll make you feel guilty. Here's the list of things you shouldn't do. Now go manage it. But see, power to defeat sin comes from the riches of God's love. When you realize your love deeply, friends, I'm trying the best I can to raise my girls to believe that their father and their mom love them so deeply that that becomes the source of their identity. And it's going perfect. There's no problems at all. I'm kidding. (laughs) Of course there are, but I want them always to return to that identity. Paul says this, to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Now, I don't know if you caught that, but, but what does that mean? How do you know something that just surpasses knowledge? I want you to know this, but you can't know it. I I would say that this way. It's about experience. Your encounter with God is about experience. It's not about education. It's not about how many sermons you listen to, how many small group Bible studies you're a part of. It's about encountering Jesus for yourself. Let me me show you an example. Some of you are wondering why there's three Cokes on stage. Some of you didn't notice because you can't see. Here's what I think. I think that many of us, when we began to grow up in our faith, when people began to pour into us, or maybe you're here and you would say, I'm not a Christian, but, but I know about that much of Christianity. The version of Christianity, the version of faith that we've been handed has basically filled our lives to about here. So this might be, well, we know Jesus died on the cross and he rose again and I gave my heart to him. We know that we should try to live like a Christian. We know there's some things that we should do and not do and probably should try to be in church on Sundays. And that's about where we are. And this is the very prim and proper contained faith. And every once in a while, maybe we show up to church or we get involved in a Bible study. And what happens is God starts to work. God starts to shake some stuff up. God starts to to be a little bit active in our life. And we might feel like, well, I'm learning a little bit more about God. But then we go home after Sunday, and Monday through Saturday is a week, right? And Monday through Saturday kind of sucks the life out of us because at times it can suck. And like that's kind of what happens. And so we go back to where we were. But many of us, this is the version of faith that we have, and we think, well, that's, that's kind of where we should be. That's, that's just how life is. That's just how Christianity is. Life's hard. Someday we're going to get to heaven, and, and, and Coke will be good for us. Like, it'll fill us up, and everything's okay. But see, I want you to grab on to something. What if? See, what if the version that you've been handed of your faith of Christianity was never really full? What if it was immeasurably more? See, many of us would say, okay, well, yeah, there's more that God can do in our life. But, 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 but even in this bottle, there's room because that's not full. Well, it is a full bottle, but it's not. A, so what do we do with that? What I want to say to you, what Paul is communicating here is I want you to understand something. This bottle is full. Your faith is full. You have everything you've ever needed to live into God's love. God has resources and riches that he will pour out to you. But listen, Paul says, it's high, it's long, it's deep, it's wide, and don't miss. I'm not going to open 
open it. That God wants to do something to fill you up more. And if I did open this, you would realize that full, the way we see it, is not full the way God sees it. What God sees full as is overflowing, exploding, expanding outward. That that's the nature of faith that lives in the love of God. And he says, that's when you become powerful. That's when love settles so clearly into something in your life that it begins to overflow to the world. And he goes on to close this. He says, now, to him who's able to do immeasurably more. He says, yeah, your Coke bottle's full in God's love, but man, God can do so much more. that He would blow the cap off this. He can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that's at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever." And ever, and this tells us the fourth part of the uncontainable life that we're invited to, that we have uncontainable potential for life and living. Friends, I just want you to grab onto this so badly. Listen, I, I'm a pretty strategic person. Most of the time in our church, I can tell you where we're going to be six months to a year from now. I can tell you what sermons we're going to be teaching. I like mapping that stuff out. That's kind of where I just hit my sweet spot. But I want you to know something. The past year, I feel like God has been deepening my own personal experience of him. I'm finding more space for meditation. I'm finding more space to just listen, to be still. And, and this year, as we entered January, what I felt like God was saying to, the, to, to us as a church was, I want you to simply know the love of God. I want you to simply press in new community to know the love of God. And so can I just tell you, I got about one sermon to preach for the rest of the year. I'm going to use different scriptures to do it, but you're going to hear about one sermon. Some of you are like, well, you preach too much on the love of God. Well, if that's what you think, you maybe need to check your heart. I, I don't know, because it's a pretty good sermon that's been changing my life. And I want to just say to you, I want you to know the love of God so deeply, but here's what I know. I can't program that for you. I can't strategize that experience for you. I, I kind of want us as a church, and the band can go ahead and come. I, I kind of want us as a church to start to act like hush puppy when it comes to our faith, right? I kind of I wish somebody would come grab, no, don't do it, but like come grab this from me and be like, this is our faith. Like I kind of want us to beast it. I kind of want us to get hungry as a community to say, what if God wants to do something and it's not built on my Christian education, it's not built on how many Sundays I show up, but it's built on me radically encountering Jesus Christ? What if God wants to do something among us as a community that results in radical generosity? Can you imagine how much the people would be blessed if the church truly became radically generous? What would that look like? That's not guilt. Don't hear that as guilt. If you think I'm talking about giving more money because I want you to feel guilty, go give somewhere else, but get radical in your generosity. What if it was more about radical prayer? In two weeks, I'm going to pre preach and teach you about prayer, and I'm going to call you to 24 hours of consistent prayer as we enter into the Easter season. Some of you are going to back out of that because you go, well, that's just, that's just radical. Yes! What if we entered into radical evangelism? Can I, can I just challenge you with something just think about something in your head for right now how many of you know somebody that you love could be a friend could be a family member uh could be a neighbor somebody you work with that you love that you know and you wish they would know jesus how many of you know somebody like that you don't have to raise your hand but you know somebody like that hey here's what i would love i would love if you radically started to pray for them don't radically start to preach at them. You'll chase them away. Radically start to pray for them. And I'm going to pray with you 
today for them. On the count of three, I'd like you to speak their name out loud. If they're here, don't say that name. Come up with another name because that'll be awkward, okay? But, but radically say their name. One, two, three, just say the name. See, you did the same thing the first service did. Is he for real? I have to speak out loud in church. I'm white. Does he know I'm white? I don't talk in church. One, two, three, say their name one more time, but say it for real. One, two, three. Now, let me just say, in Jesus' name, we speak those names, God, to you, and we ask that you would call us to radically start to care, to radically start to love, to radically start to show compassion and mercy and grace, to live out of the overflow of who you are. Amen. You just prayed your first prayer, maybe, for someone that you know doesn't know Jesus, and I'm challenging you to keep going with that. What if we radically started to worship God? What if we radically started to say, God, I'm all in. And you showed up on a Sunday morning and you said, I'm not going to worry about what people think around me. I'm just going to worship God. I might lift my hands to God. I might actually clap. I might actually sing out loud this week. We started to worship God in our day-to-day life. What if we went with radical discipleship? A year ago, I made the decision to, to kind of put our community groups on hold. Because what I was finding was all of our leaders were spreading out and trying to launch these community groups. And by the end of the year, they were discouraged. They were, they were feeling left like, where's our help? What are, we, what are we doing? And I took eight people and I said, I want to disciple you. I want to walk with you this year for the next year. And then the challenge is at the end of this year, you're each going to take six people. And now we started with eight. And next year, we're going to have about 48, hopefully. And then after that, it's going to multiply. I'm bad at math. I don't know how many it'll be. But it's going to be exponential. Because if we get radical about discipleship, Jesus didn't say, go make churches, go make small groups, go make really cool Sunday school programs. He said, go and make disciples. So if you would say, I'm ready to be discipled, I would love for you to act on that. What if this place on Wednesday nights became a radical place for you? For middle schoolers and high schoolers. How many of you have middle schoolers and high schoolers? You know what I'm finding? They're just not passionate about much a tough time engaging and getting excited and everything's about, oh, we're so nervous to come out of our shell and be who we are. If you have a passionate middle schooler or high schooler, get them engaged because we need them. And parents, listen, I'm going to offend some people. I do this all the time. I'm, I apologize. But if you're more passionate about their sports or their academics or their cultural involvement or their co-ed stuff than you are about their life with Christ, that's contagious and that's what you're teaching them about discipleship. We have to get radical in this commitment. What if we were radically fellowshipping with each other? I know that's a church word, right? Fellowship. But what if we found out somebody was in need among us and we just showed up at their house? I know, West Virginia, we don't ask for help. But we started just showing up and loving them well and walking beside them in their pain, in their divorce, in their abuse, in their addiction, in their brokenness, in their hurt. What if we came alongside said, listen, this is not an agenda. We've just encountered the love of Christ, and the lid is off, and we have to spill it out to the community. We're going to sing this song again. The song, Tremble, right? These words, Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. Some of you don't have to look far to see the darkness. Some of you are living it every single day. Some of you are walking through it right now, but you make the darkness tremble. Jesus, you silence fear. Fear is a theme of my life that I battle, and these words just cut me to the core. Jesus, you silence that fear. And as we sing those words, your name, Jesus, is a light that the shadows can't deny. Your name cannot be overcome. What if we started to believe that? What if we started to rest? Let's stand.
stand and pray together.